This is the second message about justice. I had a couple folks ask me to talk about it. And quite frankly, I was very surprised. Um, you guys know that when I look into something like that, I try to see what the scripture says about it and dig into the language usage and check translations and do all that kind of stuff. And I was super surprised by something that we'll review in just a little bit here. And it's the variations in the words. Um, howdy. The variations in the words that are used, uh, translated as justice and the scarcity actually of the words that are translated justice. And it, it, it seems, it seemed to me to kind of fly in the face of how important justice feels to us and, uh, how frustrating it is when we don't see it and how, uh, kind of how we feel when we do see justice, but it, it, it almost leaves us unfulfilled. So anyway, uh, I'm going to go ahead and review that. And then I've had some really good conversation and some really good discussions, and I've had some really good and hard questions about justice. And I've had a few of those myself. And so uh, this last Tuesday, we were, one of the questions that came up that I want to try to address tonight is justice in light of the future. Uh, and what role does, uh, you know, what, what is justice like in eternity? What kind of expectations do we have and should we have? And are the ones we have the ones we should have? And, and, and how can we work on that? So anyway, uh, I'm wide open with the mic tonight. Uh, we're going to be considering justice from eternity backwards with the exception of the review. <laughs> so. There's two things here. One of them is uh, from N.T. Wright. He has a book called Broken Signpost, and there are eight different things. Uh, justice is one of them. Love is one of them. Spirituality is one of them. Uh, anyway, what the reason the book is called Broken Signpost is he said these are things that are intrinsic in our lives, things that, that we all have an innate longing for and innate knowledge for, but the signposts are broken. They point to something but you can't really tell where they point to, and it's hard to get there, is, is kind of what his principle is. It's a pretty good book if you ever want to read it. Um, but this is a quote about justice. Justice is the first of his broken signposts. It's chapter one, right after the introduction. The instinct for justice, in other words, runs deep. You don't have to have a master's degree in philosophical ethics to know what it's all about. It's a universal human sense. That isn't right. Something needs to be done to put it right. We all know it, but we all find that putting right is difficult. Here's the problem. We all know justice matters, but we all find it difficult or sometimes downright impossible to achieve it. And um, I think regardless of how much we wish that wasn't true, we face the dilemma of the fact that it is. You know, it is kind of true. And then George MacDonald, this is from his uh, sermon in Volume 3 of Unspoken Sermons. And just let me do an advertisement for Unspoken Sermons. Uh, if, you, if you have a place in your reading schedule and you want something that is wonderful and challenging and brings insights that you don't often get from reading contemporary books, I would really strongly recommend that you read unspoken sermons. Um, C.S. Lewis, not about this, he was writing this in the introduction uh, to a, what Athanasius wrote on the Incarnation. But he said, uh, 
all people should read books from different eras because you're in somewhat of an echo chamber with the assumptions of your own era. And he said, it would be amazing to read books of the future because they would clearly reveal a different cultural thing, but they're hard to get. <laughs> so he said, your only real choice is to go back and read books in the past. And the other thing that he uh, he recommended, which I think is really, really good advice, I try to follow it. He says, read the people that you're reading first before you read people teaching about them. Uh, he says a lot of times, he said, I've, Lewis says a lot of times, the uh, people that are commenting on the patristic fathers or the early church fathers, they are uh, so convoluted because they're trying to match what they read with what they think or with their theology or with their own scriptural understanding. And most of these guys, because of good translation work, are pretty readable, actually. So uh, George MacDonald is one of those. And... Um, Huh? Yeah, he, he, a lot, a lot of influence, uh, Lewis credits to George MacDonald. So anyway, here's what he says, one of the things he says about justice in this message. Uh, let us endeavor to see plainly what we mean when we use the word justice and whether we mean what we ought to mean when we use it, especially with reference to God. For his justice is the live, active justice giving existence to the idea of justice in our minds and hearts. Because he is just, we are capable of knowing justice. It is because he is just that we have the idea of justice so deeply embedded in us. And one of the things that I pick up from the end of that, and we may, may come back to it in a little bit, is the idea of justice being so deeply embedded in us that if we're not careful, that suggests to our mind and our heart and our psyche that we we know what it is and it, it's planted in us but um, justice takes on a lot of different forms unfortunately through culture and so this this is one of the reasons that I tried to look what does the Bible actually say about justice and then what grows out of that with our own expectations and our own stuff. So that's what we're going to try to look at tonight. So that was the first one we looked at. So here's the English language and English language definition of just. I think all of us recognize it. The maintenance or administration of what is just, especially by the impartial adjustment of conflicting claims or the assignment of merited rewards and punishments. So two things come out of that definition. When we think about justice in our culture and in our era, when we think about justice, we almost always see... Um, an adversarial kind of relationship that has to be solved. In other words, there's one side versus another. And a, a judge or a justice, which is interesting that that's what they're called, uh, a judge or a justice is is a, a, uh, advocating or, or deciding between and trying to balance the interest of competing parties. And that could be criminal or it could be civil or anything along those lines. And then also, or, and this is the second part of justice, the assignment of merited rewards or punishment. And so I think everybody understands that when we think about justice, when we read an article in a newspaper about justice, um, that's really what we're mostly thinking about is those, the, the adversarial kind of situation where two different claims are presented between two different people and somebody gets in the middle and arbitrates or decides. And then uh, either, I, I, I don't know that we often think about justice, although probably, when somebody does something so good they should be rewarded. 
Like it's really uh, an injustice when somebody is does something wonderful and they don't get the recognition or they get it. But I don't think we think about it, but I think that is what this definition would make room for. The big one that, that's easier to understand is punishment. If somebody does something that either breaks a law or violates another person or somehow harms the community, punishment is very often associated with justice being done. Uh, George MacDonald, if you read his message on justice, would argue that there's no amount of punishment, for the most part, that can satisfy or wipe away the wrong that was done to somebody. And he uses the illustration of his watch and then a bunch of other things. Um, but it's an interesting interesting take on it, something we're thinking about. Then the other definitions are uh, a judge, you know, in other words, the, like a Supreme Court judge is called a justice. Uh, the quality, this is a little bit more uh, philosophic, the quality of being just, impartial, or fair. And one of the things I've noticed in the, in the last, several of the conversations I've had is I've almost every time I got in one of those conversations, somebody, and these were all with believers, somebody wanted to kind of poo-poo fairness. Like it's not a big deal. And I, I, I understand that in a way. It's almost like saying, uh, you know how people poo-poo happiness when they're talking about joy? Because joy's got a more spiritual quality and happiness is just reaction to your circumstances. I, I think we, I think we might do that because we're more familiar looking with things on a horizontal level than we are taking the time to look at them on a vertical level with God. I personally have come to believe over the last few weeks as I've been studying about this, that the issue of being just and impartial and fair, or and I wouldn't even include impartial personally, uh, because impartial means I don't care about which person or what situation it is. So, But just and fair, I think, are essential core traits of who God is. And for us to dismiss those because justice seems to have more gravitas, it seems to have more foundation, I think is we do that to our hurt and to our um, sort of the dulling of our expectations about justice or the scope of what we expect about justice. And then the principle of dealing justly, that's sort of the same thing, right action, conformity to this principle or ideal. And it's interesting that they listed righteousness as part of it because we'll see in just a moment that uh, the words in the, the Bible, both Old and New Testament, that, that are translated righteousness are the primary ones that become justice. They're translated justice because uh, there isn't really a biblical word either in Hebrew or in Greek that is a standalone word that means justice, which was a complete surprise to me. A complete surprise to me. Uh, the quality of conforming to law, uh, conforming to the truth, fact, or reason to be correct. Uh, uh, the illustration I think that the dictionary gave for that is uh, that man really did justice to that subject in his lesson or in his lecture. That's, that's the way the word's used. Uh, and then, so the key concepts are just, one who judges righteousness and fairness. Okay? Now, here's where it, get, it got interesting for me. I was utterly shocked by this. So uh, the way this chart works is there's the Bible translation in bold. Next to that is the Old Testament number of usage when you do a search for justice in that specific translation in English. Just, you know, just the word justice. And uh, so 
the New American Standard Bible, which is the one I usually use kind of as my base for reaching out from, there's 129 uses returned, instances returned when you search for justice in the Old Testament and nine in the New Testament. In the King James, which this was super surprising to me, there are only 28 times that the word justice is used in the Old Testament and zero times that justice is used in the New. Uh, Young's literal has only eight instances of justice in the Old Testament and eight instances of justice in the New Testament. And I happen to have those on a card here in case you want to look at them. The uh, complete Jewish Bible has 142 instances of the word justice in the Old Testament, 22 in the New Testament. The Living Bible has 115, uh, 12 in the New. The New Living has 149. It's the champion among the ones that I uh, that I looked at. And 22 in the New Testament. The NIV has 118 and 16 in the New Testament. And the Holman Christian Standard Bible has 137 in the Old Testament, 13 in the New Testament. Now, uh, this next little thing I'm going to pop up, it's the only thing I split up. Uh, I'm, I'm open to this being challenged, but I have found this to be helpful and true, thinking this way. The variables in the way this word is used in translations and the limited number of words that it is used from, or there's, there's only a few words, like maybe seven or eight words, in Hebrew and in Greek, that are translated justice. Um, but there's a tremendous variation in when they are. That should give you and me permission to look closer and see what's really up about this word justice. In other words, if for me to say, like I said uh, Tuesday night, I don't think justice is the best biblical word to use for what we are expecting from God as being just, as being fair, and as making everything work out in the end. That's not me. I don't, I mean, I used to freak out when I'd say something like that, but just because you can pull a copy of the New Living Translation off and it's got 149 instances of justice in it, uh, that doesn't make you or I unbiblical or challenging or threatening the Bible by simply asking the question. It's okay to say, why does young literal only use it eight times in the Old Testament? And why does another one use it 142 times? Okay, so I don't know what Bible studies for if it's not for stuff like this <laughs> to try to understand what's going on. Okay, so here's the Old Testament usage. Mishpat primarily uh, is translated as judgment, and it's used a bunch in the Old Testament. Their numbers are down here. Uh, Sedek, Sedekwah, and Sadak all fundamentally mean righteousness. They're all the Old Testament words for righteousness. And the word dune means judgment almost every time it's used in the Old Testament. And so you can see it down here. So in the King James, keep in mind, there's only 28 instances of justice being used in the Old Testament. So Mishpat is only translated one time as justice. One time. And that's in Job. And it sort of makes sense. So think about this. Job's friends were going on and on about what must be wrong with him because God is just, right? He loves justice. 
But then they got rebuke because God said, well, what they're saying is not true. It's not who I am. So that's one of the references about God and justice, how they link. All right, so then uh, the other words here, Sedek, 10 out of 116. So let me go back to this idea on Mishpat. First of all, one out of 422 times that word is translated, it's translated as justice. Sedek, 10 out of 116 times. All the other 116 times are, are translated right or righteous or something like that. Sedequah, 15 out of 157. Okay? And then Sadat, 2 out of 41. That actually has the best ratio of all of the other words. Uh, so that's the 28 for King James. Now, let's look at the New American Standard. Mishpat, which in, in the other translation, the King James translation was used one time for justice, is used 118 out of 422. Okay? Sedek is used three out of 116 times up there. Sedekwah is used once in the New American Standard. And, and when I say out of, out of 116, the, the number like 422 for Mishpat, 116 for uh, Sedek, that's the actual time that's used in the Hebrew or Greek manuscript. Okay? So you see what I'm saying? And then, uh, so Mishpat in the New American Standard is translated 118 of uh, 422, 3 out of 116, 1 out of 157, 2 out of uh, 41. And then dune is a word that almost exclusively means vengeance or avenge. Uh, there's one called suffer perpetual punishment is translated dune. But uh, that's four times that it's used as uh, justice. And then there's one that if you've ever looked in a Strong's Concordance and you see Zero, 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 zero. That means that it's a word that doesn't have a word behind it. And there's another word. There's one other translated justice, which is a word added for clarity. It's not in the manuscript. So that's what it looks like as far as Old Testament in those two translations. I haven't looked in much in detail in the others. But you can see the huge difference is that Mishpat, which almost well, over 400 and something other times is translated judgment, is somewhat arbitrarily translated 118 times as justice. And what I saw when I went in and analyzed that is when Mishpat is either paired with one of the Sadak words or uh, Shiphoth or something like that, it's a word that, that um, means righteousness, when they're paired together, the translators apparently thought that righteousness and justice sounded better, made a better pairing than righteousness and judgment. And I think the reason is because we have a negative view of judgment, and judgment doesn't seem like it goes with righteousness. We have a positive view of justice, and it does seem like it goes. Yes, sir? I'm curious to know if the disparity in the usage of the word is because we, as a group, could all sit in the same room and listen to the same 
problems or issues, right, that would require some form of justice and have our own ideal of what justice in that situation looks like. I mean, it's such a very conflicting thing to have. I, we could sit in a court and listen to a case and each of us would have a variation of what justice looks like. Uh, you know what, that could certainly play into the translator's mind and choice. But as I was looking at that, because 118 scriptures, like the like Mishpat is translated justice, is a lot of scriptures. And I looked at all those, and mostly it was just a declaration about God being righteous and, and, and having justice or God loving. It, it wasn't about particular things. It, it's that God will protect you. God will deliver you. There was a handful of those issues that that pairing righteousness and justice was assigned to. Whereas most of the other mishpats dealt with something specific that God was going to come against or was going to bring judgment against the neighboring nations or they was going to bring judgment against you know somebody for breaking the law or something like that. So I, it, it certainly has, there's some psychological ambiguity and influence that causes that translation. Um, I, I, but I think if we actually read those verses and we just get, okay, we're going to read this verse and it's, we're going to say justice in it and we're going to read this verse and say judgment in it, there may be some little difference of opinion between us about which is better. But I don't think there's a consistent enough, this verse doesn't make any sense if you say righteousness and judgment but it makes a lot of sense if you say righteousness and judgment. I think it's one of those things in our heart that N.T. Wright talked about, which is we think we know what justice is, and we we measure it by what we think. And so it's easy to translate it that way. Um, in the New Testament, it's obviously not used as many times, but it's it's a little bit as diverse. So the first word that is translated is the word decay, and uh, that is translated one out of three times it's used in the New Testament. Uh, and it could very easily, uh, the one that it's translated is an interesting story. It's where Paul uh, was washed ashore on the island of Malta. He was feeding a fire and a snake bit him. And one of the people there invoked the name of the goddess Decay. Justice as a person will not let this murderer escape. And then when he shook it off, you know, they started, oh, we're going to worship him. So I think it's interesting. And for those of you that were here for the hell thing, you know, I brought up the fact that that hell has gained a lot of its meaning uh, over the last couple thousand years by the North mythology about the, the goddess of the underworld in hell. And I think we kind of want to be careful about drawing too much of our meaning from pagan gods. You know, just as a general course of caution. <laughs> uh, so, interestingly, DK is the root Greek word for the next three, uh, well, four, the bottom one down there. So, uh, dikaios is translated righteousness and just 45 out of 79 times. Only one time out of 79 is it translated justice. And if you read it, you could easily plug the word righteous in 
And in the sentence would mean the same thing, but it would speak to something different. It would speak to the nature of the transformation that is the result of what this is, as opposed to the process of justice to get it there. And Dikeo uh, Sune means righteousness 90 out of 92 times. N.T. Wright, the guy I quoted, translates Dikeo Sune as covenant justice, not because he was necessarily trying, I think, to overemphasize justice. He's trying to pull away from the idea of imputed righteousness into the fact that God is manifesting faithfulness to his covenant promises. But nonetheless, there's one there. And then Dikeu primarily means justified 30 out of 39 times, but there's one instance in Luke where it's translated justice. So one out of out of uh, 39 times. And then uh, I'm going to skip creases for a second and go to Edicase, because you can see it's the same root word as DK. And justice is used two out of nine times. And again, it shows me that if you can take a word that normally means vengeance and you can plug justice in it and think it has the same meaning, that tells you what you think justice is. And we've got to be careful to, to let that speak to us, I think. And so that's that. We could study those and you could make your own, own judgment about whether it was an appropriate thing to do. Then creases is interesting. Creases is judgment. I mean, it's translated judgment everywhere, but four out of the 47 times in the New American Standard, it's translated justice. And the same is true of a lot of the other, any of the, the more modern translations like the New Living and the NIV. So, the, the consequence, again, asking this question, there's something about the mindset of modern translators from the English Standard Version forward, the Revised Standard Version forward, there's something about the mindset of modern translators that like what the word justice conveys better than they like judgment in the Old Testament and better than they like righteousness in the New Testament. And I think that it's okay to ask if that's legitimate or not. All right, so tonight I'm going to try to respond to what was really um, an important need that came out of Tuesday. And so I'll preface this by saying, so we're going to look at three possible eternities. And we're going to do so, and then try to plug our concept of justice and the biblical concept of justice in, see which one might work. Now, uh, I'm working on the premise that I've worked on for a long time. I don't remember where I first heard it. But the more important question is, the fewer possible answers it usually has. Uh, where do you want to go to lunch tomorrow? Well, that isn't that important a question, and it can have a hundred answers depending on where you are. But, uh, you know, who is the king of the universe? <laughs> that narrows things down quite a lot. So the more important, the more substantial a question generally is fewer answers. So I don't think I'm being like horribly presumptuous to say there are three possibilities for eternity. And so we'll see here. So here's the first one. Um, it's a little easier to see up there, but I'll, I'll, I'll point out what's here. So actually, I'll go here because it's big. All right, so this is the earth. Does that look like the earth enough? Okay. And then all these little gray things 
are tombstones. You can probably see it better over there. They all say, rest in peace on them. And then, this is the cross. And that's Jesus, and that's the symbol that, that we uh, created, I created, about Christ reigning right now until, you know. So you have Jesus on the cross as the King of Kings, and then this place over here in the upper corner, that's the gate to heaven. Or whatever, wherever we're going to, it might be the New Jerusalem, whatever the case is. That's that gate. You see that little blue, the water's flowing out of it. Uh, Ezekiel, you know, that's coming out of the temple and flowing and so on. And then this down here, this kind of blows the illustration because it doesn't show the variation. But I think over here you can probably see it. Does anybody have an idea about what's down here? Hell. That's the bad place. So this is destination one, the desirable one. This is destination two, the just one. No. <laughs> but maybe. Maybe. Okay. So And then there's the tombstones and so on. So that's option A. I would call that option A. Uh, penal substitutionary atonement, eternal conscious torment option. Uh, a destiny of eternity that has two places. And you can see the majority of people or over there, and I don't know if you can see it up there. You can a little bit. On one, Jesus is standing there in the middle. He's not on the throne. He's just operating on the basis of the cross, and he's pointing. He says, "Come on, you on my right. You go up here, and you guys are down there." Now, I'm not trying to mock that. I'm trying to just iconize it. So, but you understand that there's a lot of people that believe that's an an accurate, relatively accurate, but inadequate. Uh, illustration of eternity, option A. Any thoughts about that or questions before we move to the next one? Okay. All right. So here's eternity, option B. Uh, same tombstones, same earth, same cross, a little bit smaller. Jesus, though, is not ruling and reigning essentially in any sort of throne of grace, judgment kind of way, which he's doing there. And the crowd's pretty evenly dispersed because this is my iconization of a universalist kind of thing. And, and I'm talking just a general universalist, not a very in-depth Christian, thought-out universalist. And I know that's insulting some people. But uh, it's just like everybody's going to go to heaven, doesn't matter what. Okay? And so that's basically the thing. The gates are still the same gates. And 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 so basically, the the one of the things these two things have in common is there's not really much at all of a connection between here and here, except that everybody has to die before they get to that part. And this is where it gets hard to illustrate any differently. But um, ever since the early church fathers, not this kind of universalism, but universalism, Christian universalism, has been one of the options that people thought about eternity. And so we have, so I would call that one, uh, you know, general universalism. Any thoughts, questions on that before we go to the third one? Okay. So here's number three. Eternity option three. So what are we looking at here? Okay, I'll point it out up here. Yeah, there's a river of life that comes out of the throne, but it covers a little more ground than it did in my other illustration. And I didn't know how to illustrate it otherwise. 
Um, so here we're on earth, tombstones, and there's people that are risen out of the grave. I don't have a timeline on that, but they're not just all isolated up there or up there. They're happening at different times. And then rather than being directed around like a crowd, here's Jesus, same Jesus is there, same Jesus is there, but he's in contact with this one individual. In other words, this guy is face-to-face, hand-to-shoulder with Jesus. And before this guy, now I don't understand. You know, this is like in those near-death experiences. Go to the light, go to the light. I didn't know what to illustrate it as. But it's, it's there. It's a place where to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. Here's this one guy, and it's as if he's the only one in the universe being dealt with right now. He's not part of a big mass crowd, and he's not part of the the group that's going the wrong way and the group that's going the right way. He's there. And Jesus has shown him this whole penalty. Now, these people over here, those are that dude's family and friends and mentors and people he's walked with, in my illustration. And so they're waiting in this area. They've come to meet him, or they've come to greet him, or I don't know. I don't know. And I, I, I'm not going to be able to defend all this with Scripture. You understand? Um, but so that's that. And then there are various paths. So like if Jesus happened to be pointing to this path, wow, I don't know. That's a long way to go. That's a long way to go. And it's a long climb. And what's waiting for him up there? I don't know. Is it too small to see? There are people along this path. See that? Little crowds of people, people up there. This is a little bit shorter. It runs along near the river of life. This one's pretty straight. There's nobody really waiting. You just kind of bomb your way along there. All of these are accessible from up here. And then there's, you see how there's these rolling hills and the river of life comes and then it comes from here. And then the trail continues. And then these are like, these are like, and I borrowed some of this illustration, honestly, from a book called uh, uh, Hell and Beyond, in my own thinking. But those mountains back there are like God's place. And people can come and go from there. And some of these people have come down to greet and visit and so on. Jesus is dealing with one. And there's other people there that are ready to meet Jesus as well. And the time doesn't work very well because he can obviously meet more than one person at a time. But I think when he meets them, he's going to be basically giving them 100% of his attention. And so then... Can you tell what this is back here? Yeah, that's fire. And if you want to think about that as a scripture, uh, you can think about 1 Corinthians chapter 3, where Paul says, every man's work can be tested by fire. So all of these trails on the way to the mountains go through the fire. Now, there's one more thing there. You see it? What would you think that one might be? Yeah. The outer darkness. It doesn't have a trail into or out of it. I don't think it's a place anybody would go willingly. But it's there. The Bible talks about it. The outer darkness. Now, it's way too much for me to try to tell you what I think that means but I don't think that it's just a synonym for hell. 
Just like I don't think the lake of fire is a synonym for hell, or I don't think being delivered over to the tormentors are a synonym for hell. But I do think it's a reality that speaks to something. Now, how long does it take to... uh, To go there. I don't know. I don't know. It takes an age or two. And if you look at, at the word aeon, that is what that means. And if a person needs to go into the outer darkness, how long will they be there? I don't know. An age. Or a couple of ages. Or ages and ages. Because whatever the work is that the outer darkness needs to do, and the best depiction of that I've ever heard is that the outer darkness is the place where all the things that you, that distract you and allow you to compare yourself favorably to them are gone. In the outer darkness, all you have is you. And the goal of the outer darkness is so that you eventually get so sick of you that you will believe in something other than yourself. I don't know. It's, McDonald talks about that, so he, you can, he'll say it better than I did. Uh, the paths that have the people on them is the one, is, is the thing I'm trying to depict there is that, uh, oh, so this view for sure, and this view usually, you have to be in position, although it doesn't really matter in this view, but in this one, you have to be positioned properly when you die because that's the only chance you get. Okay, that's the only chance you get. This view suggests that it is appointed for man once to die and then the judgment, but probably better prepped and understood the way we talked about judgment in John chapter 3, which is this is judgment that light has come into the world and men love darkness rather than light. So anyway, eternity A would be like uh, heaven and hell. Penal substitutionary tell me you're dead and you're judged. Eternity B is kind of a general universalism and there's a lot of other versions of universalism. And eternity C is an option that the redemptive ministry of Jesus continues beyond our death. And it continues in a light that we don't actually have fully here. Um, And so I personally happen to believe in something close to option C. And I don't know all the details. And I don't know how long it takes to go down any of those paths. I don't know what's required. I'm thinking that on some of those paths... I think on all of those paths, when we encounter people, it will be an opportunity to repent or for them to do so and to receive forgiveness on what goes on between us. The work of the cross and Jesus' victory in that and embodiment of that work is what makes this intermediate area there effective. And I can find nothing in Scripture that denies Jesus the aspect to continue to reveal who the Father is and who we are.
And if judgment is light and not a gavel blow, I think there's, I think there's plenty of room in there for judgment and the consequence of that judgment as we make our way into the fullness of our destiny and into the fullness of eternity. So anyway. So I've just got a couple of scenarios, uh, scriptures, and sorry that's so small, they're kind of big, uh, that to me suggest a legitimacy to these three views of eternity. This is First Corinthians 15. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. This is Paul talking about that and challenging the, the Corinthians and so on. Uh, and if Christ had not been raised, your faith is worthless. You are still in your sins. Then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If we have hoped in Christ in this life only, we are, we are of all men most to be pitied. Now I emphasize that because in light of eternity option three, it means that there is still continuing work to do, hope to do, glory to experience, forgiveness to receive, et cetera, et cetera. Not necessarily forgiveness to receive, repentance and, and reconciliation, the, the words of reconciliation. Uh, now, I, I understand it can be interpreted different ways. I can't, I do. Uh, if you impose death as the final thing, then it means that the hope you have in this life in Christ will be realized in the next life. But I, I'm, I'm willing to let it have a slightly larger context. But now Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who are asleep. For since by a man came death, by a man also came the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ all will be made alive. There aren't any weirdly translated words in that verse. All means all, Christ means Christ, man means man. Uh, alive means alive. So that is another thing that suggests to me that option three has some dynamic reality possible from the time that to be absent from the bodies to be present with the Lord and then the ultimate final time that we are whatever, judged, rewarded thrown in the outer darkness make our way into the fire consuming fire uh, but each in his own order Christ the first fruits after those who, uh, those who are Christ at his coming then comes the end when he hands over the kingdom to the God and Father when he has abolished all rule and all authority and power, for he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. It would probably be good for us to think about what constitutes an enemy of Christ and how long is he reigning and through whom is he overcoming those enemies. Is it is it us? Are we the ones that are doing it? Are we limited to our time here on earth or is there an opportunity for that other stuff and healing and all that kind of stuff take place. Uh, he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy that will be abolished is death, for he has put all things in subjection under his feet. But when he says all things are put in subjection, it is evident that he is accepted who put all things in subjection to him, meaning God the Father is accepted, I think. Uh, when all things are subjected to him, then the Son himself also will be subjected to the one who subjected all things to him, so that God may be all in all. And if I was to go back and look at option three, I th I'm thinking that what we've traditionally thought of in the context of the marriage feast of the Lamb, that celebration of life and, and our union with Christ and all this kind of stuff, 
also what we've thought about of the, the, the New Jerusalem and the gates are uh, forever open, uh, but there are those that are still on the outside and maybe even the Lake of Fire people and, and the Lake of Fire angels and stuff. I think that up the mountain before the city is where this idea that, uh, that he puts in there uh, when all things are subjected to him, then the Son himself will also be subjected to the one who subjected all things so that God may be all in all. Okay? Now that is a, a, a powerful eschatological statement, one of the most specific in Scripture, way more than just uh, gerrymandering a few passages in Revelation and Matthew 24. So let that guide us a little bit. You guys can jump in your time. Acts 3, 17 through 26. And now, brethren, I know that you acted in ignorance. This is Peter preaching just after the resurrection of Jesus, after Pentecost, about 40 days, uh, just as your rulers did also. But the things which God announced beforehand by the mouth of all the prophets, that his Christ would suffer, he has thus fulfilled. We just went through that in Easter, you know, and it was cool thinking about the Maus Road situation, the revelation that Jesus gave, speaking of himself and all that. Therefore, repent and return so that your sins may be wiped away in order that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord and that he may send Jesus, the Christ, appointed for you, whom heaven must receive until the period of restoration of all things, about which God spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets from the ancient times. Moses said, the Lord God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brethren. To him you shall give heed to everything he says to you. And it will be that every soul that does not heed the prophet shall be utterly destroyed from among the people. And likewise, all the prophets who have spoken from Samuel and his successors onward also announced these days, it is you who are the sons of the prophets in the covenant which God made with your father, saying to Abraham, in, and in your seed all the families of the earth shall be blessed. For you first God raised up his servant and sent him to bless you by turning every one of you from your wicked ways. Now, I don't think that clears up much, except it creates a scenario in my mind where um, there is there's room for punishment, there's room for death, there's also room for promise. It reminds me a lot of what we studied when we studied about uh, about um, what's the valley outside Jerusalem? Hinnom, yeah. Jeremiah was prophesying about the, the Jew, Jews being taken away to captivity. And it was just hammer and hammer and hammer what God said. And then God broke in on him after the new covenant prophecy in, in chapter 32. He broke in and said, you know, this city that you say is going to be cast away, I'm going to get them back. I'm going to make them love me. I'm going to make them worship me. I'm going to make them follow me for their sake and their children's sake. Stuff's on. Jesus said in John chapter 17, Father, I have made your name known, and I will make it known. Now, he's doing that now through us. He's doing it through evangelism, no question. Is it possible that that death stops him from doing that? I don't think so, because he already died, and he's alive. And so, it, this doesn't prove anything. It just opens the door for something in my heart. And I want you to think about that. And then I want you to think about, what would justice be like in this kind of a scenario? And the last one is one we looked at last week. And there's two little bits of Greek here that I want you to pay attention to. Now, apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been manifest, being witnessed by the law and the prophets. Even the righteousness of God through faith in. And the reason I highlighted faith in is it is 
the Greek genitive case, and it literally means faith of. That is what the genitive case speaks of. And it's sort of the same thing that you're healed by the faith of Christ, not faith in Christ. Romans, uh, early part of Romans chapter 8, um, you know, faith of, faith of. Galatians, when it pleased God to reveal his son, not to me, but in me, it's that kind of idea. So uh, this really should read, if it were translated the way the Greek is written in very reliable consistency throughout all the manuscripts, even the righteousness of God through the faith of Jesus Christ. For all those who believe, for there is no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, being justified as a gift by his grace through the redemption which is in Christ Jesus. So pause here just for a second. All have sinned. What would justice demand? That all would be punished or perish or die for the wages of sin is death. But that isn't what happens. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God being justified as a gift by His grace through the redemption which is in, present tense, in Christ Jesus, whom God displayed publicly as a propitiation in His blood through faith. This was to demonstrate His righteousness. What? Because in forbearance of God, He passed over the sins previously committed. So God's righteousness is being demonstrated by not punishing sin for a period of time. Passing over those sins. To demonstrate his righteousness because in forbearance of God, he passed over the sins previously committed. For the demonstration, I say, of his righteousness at the present time so that he would be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in, is the way it's written, but the two words there are ek pista. Ek means from or out of. And so it really should be translated the faith out from Jesus if it were translated literally, the way it is. Uh, but again, because of option, uh, eternity option A, our faith decides things during our life, and it's in Jesus. It's not his faith in us, it's our faith in him. That's option A. Um, faith is not really a big issue in option B, eternity B, but faith is an active, ongoing reality in our lives given to us by Christ so that nothing needs to go unjustified. Nothing needs to go unhealed. There's not any part of heaven where anybody is going to be able to hide anything. And there's no place in heaven where anybody's going to need to hide from anything. Because heaven as characterized in Revelation about the new city, a new Jerusalem, is a place where righteousness dwells. Now, I'm personally grateful they didn't translate that one justice, because then the new Jerusalem would be outfitted with a big bench instead of thrones, and the gavel would be banging down because justice is there. That's how I thought of justice. 
but it's a place where righteousness dwells. And righteousness is going to have to be restored by the work that Jesus did. So, anyway, here's that George McDonald quote again. Let us endeavor to see plainly what we mean when we use the word justice, and whether we mean what we ought to mean when we use it, especially with reference to God. For his justice is the live, active justice, giving existence to the idea of justice in our minds and hearts. Because he is just, we are capable of knowing justice. That's part one. It is because he is just that we have the idea of justice so deeply embedded in us. So just because the Bible doesn't have specific words that really uh, mean justice, I'm not saying that justice is not important. I'm saying that God, that justice is important not because of what it produces. It's, it's important not because of the process that it is is so superior to every other process. Because there's other steps and processes that bring about righteousness. For instance, repentance and forgiveness brings about righteousness. And Jesus was so bold and audacious to say, if you don't forgive, my Father can't forgive you. Why? That's something intrinsic to us. Forgiveness is a necessity in the kingdom of God. It's a necessity to get on the other side. And there are things in our life, physical, emotional, and psychological things, if we've been abused, if we've been victimized, if we've been cheated, if we've just been had our, our glory stolen, you know, like I was thinking about relative sins, and there are certain ones that are just hideous. But then, for whatever reason, I got my mind stuck on this, the snobby leader of the pack in high school, girl. The cheerleader, the popular one. How big an atrocity in the kingdom, in the spirit, is it? When a girl like that, who's good looking and has all the boys and all this kind of stuff, steals the confidence of a slightly plainer looking young woman. It's not as bad as murdering somebody. It's not as bad as trafficking somebody. It's not as bad as, you know, ripping off something else. I don't know. But both these people are image bearers of God, made in His image. And the, for the one to do it is such a grotesque violation of that resource of being an image bearer. It has to be dealt with. It can't just be, oh, I just kid stuff. Can she be forgiven? By the Lord, of course. You know, we started this saying, what does John mean when he says, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world? In the end, there will be no sin. There will be no residual sin. Now, maybe a version of, of uh, option A is that way, and all those are, you know, I don't see how that could be true if they're actually still alive forever. So maybe they burn up. Annihilationism. I don't got a beef if anybody believes that. But what about if there's built-in journeys, individual ones, as many trails as a person needs, or as many trails as there are people, to get there so that those two girls can have an encounter under the glory of the finished work of Jesus. And the one can say, and mean it, because she knows what it meant. I'm so sorry. And the other can say, I forgive you. And Jesus has healed me of the damage. Now that's not trivial, but I do understand how it doesn't seem to compare to other gross things. But could the same thing not happen? We get glimpses of it in life. Um, Corrie ten Boom met her German guard. 
Was there justice done there? I don't remember the context of the whole story. But there was more than justice. There was restoration. There was forgiveness. There was repentance. Those things are more than our concept of justice. Our concept of justice doesn't require restoration if punishment satisfies the call. And um, if somebody damages somebody else, punishment may make you feel good, but I don't know that it actually restores the thing that was damaged. So I think that the reason there's not a lot of words that are specifically about justice in the Bible is because it's a lower form of satisfaction, a lower form of victory. It's beneath the God who is just to settle only for justice when he goes for full righteousness, full redemption, full restoration. And I know it's not easy to think about, but that's why I put these up here. If we think about this option, how many people in this group are there because they were their father grossly misrepresented the father. And they just could never get beyond it. How many people are over here because we as Christians were too fat and too lazy to go over here and do anything? About all you can expect out of that is justice. And I think that's why most people are frustrated with what they perceive as to be global injustice all over the place. If it doesn't matter... If it doesn't matter, I don't know how we go from being this damaged person to that without without something like this back there. And these elements, keep in mind, Jesus is the way, right? The Father is the consuming fire. There's plenty of reasons the actual transformative necessity that we face because of evil and because of what we do to people and what they do to us. And so I'm a some form or another of option C, and I don't know how God's going to do it. I, I mean, please don't think that I think that's an accurate representation of it. It's an icon. It's an icon. But it's a better looking icon than the ones I was looking at using that uh, had all the demons swallowing people on one side and all this other stuff. So anyway, all right, I'm open to questions. In eternity option A, behind Jesus, that is the throne of grace, yes? Mm-hmm. Oh, behind Jesus, uh, yeah. Is yeah. that the throne of grace? Yeah. Is it purposely absent in option B and C? Uh, I, I Yes, because okay. I think it's, in, in, in my understanding of option B and C, the way it's talked about in Hebrews mm-hmm. is that it's available down here on earth, theoretically. Now, okay. where it fits in option B, I, don't, I didn't have a way to illustrate it, but uh, yeah. Fair enough. That, that's why I wrote it that way.
I'd, I'd be open to other thoughts. Or, so, just an observation. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Sure. Pull this down so everybody can hear you. I just think that a lot of, like, the redemption of God has to do with, like, forgiving a debt you couldn't pay. You know, when you forgive someone instead of seeking justice, you're allowing them to not have to pay a debt to you. Mm -hmm. Like, it's a, it's a release of a debt. And so when... You know, I think a lot of times when you see, like, option A, people feel like, well, there has to be some way that these people pay. But that doesn't seem like, like, aren't we glad God doesn't do that to us every yeah. time we, you know? So if you look at it like like it's, it's kind of just releasing someone, is mm -hmm. not to say there's no consequences, because a lot of times even there's consequences whether they get arrested or something serious happens to them, it doesn't really fulfill the debt because it doesn't restore right. what they took. It doesn't restore what they took or it doesn't restore the damage of the person. That's one of the things that I don't think we think about a lot. Mm -hmm. uh, in, in, a, in a theology, in an expectation of eternity like option A, just because God forgives a person does not settle the issue between that person and another person, the person who victimized them or the person who they victimized. It doesn't. Uh, I mean, what kind of satisfaction is there? Somebody just totally was horrible to you in your life and stole your life from you or whatever. And the, the possibility of eternity where God said, well, I forgive them. Mm -hmm. And then the whole burden of forgiving them now comes back on you. Uh, it's just weird. It's disconnected. But if the whole redemptive process is designed to give these two, you and me, if I, if I have done something terrible to you, it gives you and me a chance. And we get glimpses of it in this life. We get glimpses of conviction and repentance and people going across the globe to apologize to somebody. Does that mean that Christ's forgiveness is not enough? No, it's a sign that his forgiveness is exactly enough to release the blindness and the darkness in that person. And then uh, I remember talking to a guy that comes here pretty frequently, and uh, his daughter was assaulted. And he was having a super hard time envisioning heaven with her assaulter there. And I go, I can understand that if, if nobody changes. But would it be possible for you to envision this you're walking along and there's a hedgerow. And just before you step out, you hear your daughter's voice and you're excited. You want to go say hi to her. You're in heaven, right? And then you hear the voice of her attacker respond to her. And the feelings come over you. And so you slow down and you peek around the edge and you see him saying, I am so sorry. It was inexcusable what I did to you. I was blind. I was brutish. I was wicked. I am so sorry. And she goes, it's okay. I forgive you. But I, I hurt you and I, he's healed me. I said, could you not envision standing there and tears begin to roll down your face and realize that as you witness this, that Christ has done, that your own heart is bubbling up to be healed as well. 
Well, and that's why I think you can't, if you do see, you know, I, I had a situation where one of, one of the people that attacked me is now paralyzed in a wheelchair. And you can't have joy in that. Like, how do you, like, you can't say, ha ha, that's what they deserve. You can be tempted to do it. I mean, that, right? you know, you could say, well, you know, that's a bummer, cause, but that's mm -hmm. just what happens because you're a jerk. Yeah. But I don't find any, like, joy in that. Like, no. that doesn't bring me any joy. Yeah. And so, because I don't think that would bring God joy, that I would be happy at someone's being crippled. Yeah. You know, even in spite of what they did. Exactly. You know, exactly. and so I think... When you because go, partly the toll it would take on your heart. Yeah, it's yeah. just not worth it. Yeah. You know, it's like you have to release that, and some people feel like that's not fair. But it's not fair to bind yourself up and to carry those things. You just yeah. have to be free of them. And then the forgiveness, I think, leaves it to for God to figure out like, yeah. later. I think so, too. Know? And I, I think one of the weaknesses of our view of justice is it really is a process. It's a process and an outcome, and we don't know how it happens in between. Uh, you know, as Americans or as Christians, we we think people are stupid that believe in karma. But at least karma's got a guarantee. <laughs> Justice doesn't. But conviction, revelation, repentance, all of that does. So um, I just kind of, I kind of think we, you know, I, I encourage you to, to think about, I actually encourage you to buy the book and read it, really, or even just go online. Doris, go ahead, Doris. Um, okay, here's some thoughts. Okay. Because we're talking about justice, uh, in option A, then we are attributing to those uh, people that would be condemned to hell or, you know, whatever that category is. Um, and we're, we're attributing justice for things that they did but it's my understanding the only thing we go to hell for in that scenario is not accepting Jesus not for the murders and the rapes and the stealings and the pride and, and the snubbing if we if everyone who is there is there solely for the purpose of not receiving Jesus and his redemption, then there's really not a conversation about justice. If the scripture says that you're going to be rewarded for your deeds, good and ill, uh, you know, behold my rewards with me, that kind of stuff, you're right. But there's really no room for that conversation and that option. Yeah, no, I think you're absolutely right. It's a good observation. I have a um, sense of, I call it, since my wife and my daughter, my sister transitioned within about a few months of each other. I think a lot about, well, what's, what's the kingdom, what's the kingdom like? The atmosphere of the kingdom? And I honestly, one of the conclusions is that the atmosphere of the kingdom is forgiveness. That's just all I have to say. So some form of B or C, right? <laughs> yeah. Praise God. All right. Well, I've gone over, guys, uh, and I started early, so I apologize. <laughs>